spiritually, I just felt disconnected. Uh, my social life was struggling. My relationships were struggling. And even my physical health was starting to slip. And, and so there was, a, there was a clear point where I had to stop and say, wait, you know, I, I've done everything that I was supposed to do. Why do I feel like shit? Hello and welcome to yet another exciting episode of the Lewis and Kyle show. Today, we have the pleasure of sitting down and chatting with Andy Johns. Andy has a very interesting backstory from a long career in Silicon Valley. Personally, he's been involved in over eight startups now worth over a billion dollars each. He was early on the growth teams at companies like Facebook, Twitter, Quora, and Wealthfront. Uh, and at Wealthfront, he was actually the president for a period of time. He was an early stage investor in companies like Robinhood, Webflow, and Reforge. And he's also advised companies like Opendoor and Poshmark. Currently, Andy is involved with a project called the Heroic Hearts Project. They connect military veterans with mental trauma to psychedelic therapy options with substances like ayahuasca, psilocybin, ketamine, and ibogaine. Super interesting project. This conversation mainly covers Andy's recent transition out of Silicon Valley and into the world of mental health. He has a popular Substack where he talks about his decade-long experience with a variety of therapy experiments. That's talk therapy in a traditional sense. That's different types of almost hypnotic type therapy, acupuncture, just a weird, no, I don't want to say weird, a extensive variety of treatment protocols that we get into in this conversation. We discuss some of his new goals in this kind of new phase of life, the new Andy versus the old Andy. We get into that dichotomy. And more importantly, we discuss what Andy describes as seeking a life of truth, what that's meant for him, and what he thinks that should look like for most people. I'm excited for you to listen to this conversation with Andy, and I'm going to switch to it now. Andy, welcome to the Lewis and Kyle show. I'm excited for us to be having this conversation today. Yeah, thanks for having me, guys. Absolutely. I want to start out with kind of a classic philosophy 101 metaphor that you talk about in a lot of your essays, which is Plato and the allegory of the cave. Do you mind introducing that concept and kind of describing what your, I don't know the, the correct word, but paradigm shifting moment, I guess, would be one way of looking at it. Sure, sure. So uh, Plato's allegory of the cave is a a metaphor that he used to express how most people go through life uh, living a bit of an illusion. And <clears throat> the comparison he gave was imagine people sitting inside of a cave. They hadn't seen the outside. They hadn't seen the real light and seen what the rest of the world is like. But inside that cave, there's a light that's cast up against the wall and the shadows that are cast up against that wall based on the light that's in there are what the people in the cave are paying attention to. So they're sort of fixated on these, uh, <laughs> these shadow puppets on the wall and they believe that that's what reality is. And so they live according to that. And what they don't realize is that, uh, there's something much greater beyond the illusion that they're fixated on, on the, uh, the walls of that cave. And, uh, it was a really insightful thing when, <laughs> when Plato introduced it, what, over 2000 years ago. And I find that it remains highly relevant today. And it's something that, uh, I've written about a couple of times because I definitely had that moment where I woke up and said, oh shit, <laughs> things aren't what they seem first beginning with myself, <clears throat> uh, at the tail end of more than a decade of deep introspection. Uh, but I certainly had my own, um, my own allegory of the cave moment, um, over the last couple of years. And it woke me up in pretty significant ways leading to very big changes in how I'm living my life. Yeah. I think that's another allegory of the cave moments is kind of people, there's one level of awareness where like you understand this metaphor, you shatter some illusion, and then you like, think you've seen it all. And then there's another one you, when you realize that's just going to continuously happen forever on like a number of levels. Oh yeah. 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 And for me, the way I like to think about it is, uh, you know, think of when a child is born and that child is a blank slate from a socialization standpoint. You know, you come into this world with a, a, a set of presets based on genetic disposition, but 
otherwise we we haven't been conditioned or programmed with a set of messages yet um, and that conditioning that programming of our mind happens almost immediately upon birth where as a child you start to receive a set of messages and those messages begin simple they're messages like you know don't do that <laughs> don't do this act this way behave this way and it accelerates throughout life as teachers get involved and other adults and just other aspects of the the standard socialization of life begins to condition and program that child with a certain set of beliefs for example i kind of joke with folks that when i was five years old there wasn't a part of my identity that was associated with me as a productive member of a capitalistic society right? like that part of my identity was programmed into me slowly through the process of the public education that I received, uh, through the messages I received from almost all the adults in my life around, uh, the, the need to get a high paying job and become a productive member of society. And that continued well into my professional career, of course, but there was a point in my life where that aspect of my identity didn't exist. And if you take a step back and you ask yourself like, when did the different building blocks of your identity come into your life? You can sort of rewind the clock and realize like, wait, there was a point at which, you know, there was little Andy and he didn't have any of those adult aspects of his identity built into him yet. And so it, it introduces a very interesting question of who am I actually? <laughs> and am I, the person who was conditioned to have this collection of beliefs that I have as an adult through the socialization of life, or could I be somebody else? Who was I before those messages were programmed into me? And overall, that's really what the process of spiritual seeking is about. It's, it's not the, the crap that they sell in bookstores about the pursuit of infinite happiness. Uh, that's not what it is spiritual seeking is as simple as seeking what is true. And that's what spirituality is about is somebody seeking what is true, not only for themselves, but more broadly in the world. And, uh, for me, the process began with seeking what was true with my psychology because I was struggling from various mental health conditions. And as I went deeper into understanding what was true with me with respect to the early life experiences that shaped me with respect to how my nervous system in my brain might've been shaped and molded by those experiences. Um, and then as I kept diving deeper, it moved beyond this discussion of sort of clinical psychology of mental illness to where I realized that there was a much broader set of questions that I could be asking in life, which was not only what was true for me as it related to my mental health, but what was true in general. <laughs> and, and so there, there came a point where the work that I was doing psychologically, it began in a very clinical setting, working with the psychologist, doing trauma therapy, working through the individual layers of my subconscious to understand how my early life experiences had shaped me. But then eventually, uh, the aperture of, of that seeking of the truth expanded into something much broader. Um, and it expanded into basically all aspects of my life and how I seek the truth in everything, because ultimately what I found was that in order to feel better emotionally, spiritually, psychologically, that there was a single path to that. And the path was always through finding what was true. Who was the old Andy and who are you now? <laughs> I like that question. So, uh, the old Andy, I describe as the unhappy achiever, Andy. And I described him as the unhappy achiever because that's who I was, you know, both as a child and as an adult, um, just to give a bit of context behind it, I, I had some challenging moments through the first 10 years of my life, 
Uh, my mom was manic bipolar, major depressive. Uh, she had attempted suicide a few times. Uh, I had witnessed one of those. Um, she eventually passed when I was 10 after uh, really struggling with her own psychological issues. And so she was in and out of psychiatric institutes and uh, the, the overall process um, just really took a toll on me, my brothers, my dad, when we were younger. And, uh, and so those experiences stayed with me, especially because they were happening during the formative parts of my identity and my, and my brain. And what happened was that for the, for the pain that I was experiencing as a child, um, I was seeking things that would numb the pain in the way that an adult might turn to a liquor bottle to numb the pain of loneliness that they might be feeling. As a child, I turned to achievement, you know, because whenever I got blue ribbons or straight A's or I hit a home run, I was showered with love and support from the adults in my life. But if I wasn't doing those things, then I wasn't receiving love as much. And so in this very sort of Pavlovian way, <laughs> I was conditioned to seek achievement. And uh, that became my first real drug and I was good at it. <laughs> I, was, I was very good at it. And, uh, and so that, that was the, the origin of Achiever Andy and that led to me achieving in a lot of material and societal ways um, up until a point where I guess I kind of went through the cliche scenario of I keep achieving, I'm climbing the ranks, I'm making more money, I'm moving into positions of status within the tech industry, but the satisfaction and the fulfillment that I received from each one of those promotions uh, became more and more fleeting as time went on. And there came a point where, you know, I'm a VP and then a president of a billion plus startup and I'm 34 years old and everyone's cheering me on and I'm thinking, wow, this is pretty amazing. I just grew up on a <laughs> small little, you know, dirt poor farm and here I am <laughs> helping lead a significant company, but I just felt just broken in a lot of ways. And, uh, you know, emotionally, uh, spiritually, I just felt disconnected. Uh, my social life was struggling. My relationships were struggling and even my physical health was starting to slip. And, and so there was a, there was a clear point where I had to stop and say, wait, you know, I, I've done everything that I was supposed to do. Why do I feel like shit? What gives? And, uh, and so I, I think that was the demarcation between like old Andy was, was was a person whose self-worth was attached to his professional and economic accomplishments. And uh, that's no way of living. <laughs> you know, because even when you accomplish those things, you sort of reach out for them and you put your hands on them and they, you know, it slips through your fingers like smoke. It's just, it's very temporary. And so that was old Andy and then new Andy um, new Andy is somebody whose sense of self-worth isn't dependent on achievement. Um, it's kind of a new skin. Half the time I feel like, okay, am I being lazy? But I know that that's just old conditioning and programming that I'm working through. Um, I'm becoming more creative. Uh, which is interesting and exciting and some of the projects I'm working on on the side right now are just purely creative projects uh, related to the subject of mental health. And I'm just doing it for the hell of doing it. And it's nice uh, to not be doing it with the goal of <laughs> trying to win some kind of award or recognition. Um, and I think just in general, somebody who is like, not going to just jump through arbitrary hoops th throughout the rest of his life in the way that old Andy used to. And, 
so I, I, I'd say that like the new version of me is very much so, uh, in development, <laughs> uh, and the, this sort of new ego that I'm working on constructing, I hope to be much less of an ego and, uh, uh, compared to the old one. Um, so yeah, that's, that's probably the best I could describe it right now. I think that's awesome. I think, you know, one comment I have is I think a lot of our podcast guests kind of not intentionally kind of make us feel like a, a sort, not like a guilt or whatever, like Kyle and I really on this podcast for the past hundred or so episodes, which is the entire time have really focused on like picking people, you know, because like someone will send us a pitch and like, they'll be like, what's your criteria for deciding if you, you know, bring them on the show. It's like, are we just, is there a draw? Is it like an intrinsic interest? And like we've not been super growth oriented, super like focused on promotion and X strategies to get a ton of listeners and all those things. Cause it's like, our, we just do this because we enjoy doing it. And then a lot of the time there feels like a pressure to do that. So it's nice to have like encouragement in, in the opposite direction, uh, to kind of help us find that center point. But yeah. Uh, yeah, of course, of course, just a quick comment on that. I mean, I'll straddle, uh, old Andy a little bit right here with sort of bringing up some of the tech language, like. In the classic flaming, uh, framing of product market fit, you have two aspects of that, right? Uh, one piece is the value hypothesis and the other is the distribution hypothesis. Your value hypothesis is your belief around the, the product you can create or the experience you can create and the unique value that it offers to the customer in the market. And then the distribution hypothesis is your belief around how you'll grow it, right? And what I see a lot of startup founders do, whether it's a coffee shop or it's a tech company, I see the same patterns. A lot of them try and solve the solve for the distribution hypothesis before they adequately solve for the value hypothesis. So in other words, <clears throat> and, and it kind of makes sense because they got this pressure to like grow the business and make money. And, and so they emphasize <clears throat> trying to figure out how to scale it and grow it, uh, over emphasizing providing something that's unique and useful for folks. And the, the counterintuitive aspect of it is, and drawing this back to your point is if you just follow what is interesting and valuable to you, and you start from that, from that starting point and you create something that is of unique value, that's a authentic expression of who you are then there's a good chance that you solve for the value hypothesis. And if you do that right, when you really solve for the value hypothesis by offering something that's useful to folks, it solves for the distribution hypothesis because it starts to grow organically on its own. So you don't even have to think about growth, right? It, it kind of reminds me of like, I was listening to Lex Friedman and he's like, yeah, I just interview who I want to interview. And I don't even check the stats after I post the interviews. I just do what I want to do. And he's got one of the biggest podcasts in the world. He's not even thinking about distribution. He's just thinking about what is the unique value that I can offer and what's interesting to me. So anyhow, bit of a side note, but I just want to share that. Yeah. And I'd say that's a lot of why, like, as far as paying the bills and living life, we focused on like other careers being this and taking the pressure. Cause when there's the pressure on this to produce results quickly, you can't play that game of like, follow your passion, do interesting interviews, a following will come eventually from that. Uh, when it's like, when you can be patient, it's like, you know, we're gonna, this doesn't have to make money ever for that to ever happen. So it's fine. Yeah. And if it does great. And if not, you know, we still did other things. Yeah. Then it's like, oh, great. I'm making money doing exactly what I want to do. Awesome. That's a nice side effect. <laughs> Kyle, did you have a question or I have, an, I have one if you're not queued up? Uh, I'm not queued up. All right. He's totally not queued fine. up, but <laughs> all good. All good. Uh, so one question I have, you have this kind of breaking point in your journey. And I think you used like similar words just now is your, one of your missions now to kind of help people be proactive and not need to reach a breaking point. Or do you think that's kind of like a necessary part of like the, like the arc of how these things typically go for people is like they reach that breaking point and you can't really convince someone until they feel the pain. How do you, how do you think about like, you know, if you had, if you were reading your own advice, like if old Andy could read like new Andy's thinking, would he just start therapy earlier and not have to like crack and kind of take like a dramatic pivot or like, how do you kind of think about that scenario? Yeah. 
the I believe that in most cases the amount of emotional healing or uh, spiritual awakening, the degree to which somebody goes through those things is proportional to the amount of pain that they felt. And, and so in other words, like the more pain you feel, the more likely that person is to dive deep into trying to figure out how to alleviate that pain, which leads to a deeper awareness and knowledge from a, uh, a clinical, clinical psychological standpoint, but can also lead to larger, call it philosophical insights on life. So from what I've personally experienced and from the public examples that we might see um, of folks who have had difficult, painful experiences in the past, but who have made significant changes in their life and turned out to be pretty wise, interesting people. Uh, it, it took a lot of pain for them to get there. I see that with historical figures. Uh, I see that with some of the most interesting and thought provoking, uh, modern writers. You can take say Charles Bukowski as, as an example, uh, even somebody like Hunter Thompson, Hunter S. Thompson. These are people that experience quite a bit of pain. That pain manifests itself in various addictions and compulsions and maladies, but these are also incredibly thoughtful, deep philosophical thinkers. You can see that even with modern celebrity examples like Russell Brand, you know, this is somebody who struggled with various addictions for a significant portion of his adult life. It posed a very real threat to his life in many instances. And the root of those addictions was psychological pain that he had developed just through the, the process of socialization during his childhood. And he's now, uh, changed pretty significantly. Like you can still set, tell, like, this is Russell Brand, his personality, his humor, his gregariousness, just how captivating he is as a person but he's not on the big screen playing the role of the pseudo spiritual yoga instructor. Who's trying to have sex with everybody. <laughs> he's not playing that role anymore. Now he's an academic and a writer and a speaker, uh, of sorts who plays in the realm of seeking the truth. You know, every, every video he posts is about, let's talk about what is true here. Uh, and so drawing that back to what I mentioned earlier, you know, the process of healing emotionally and of freeing your mind is fundamentally a search for what is true. And, uh, I could see that Russell Brand has been through that and how it's, it's shaped him into a person that talks about sort of global truths, uh, on a daily basis today. So I think that's just the way things work. Um, you have to experience real deep pain and suffering, uh, in order to achieve or to obtain the sorts of insights, uh, that one might associate with somebody who is very psychologically aware and spiritually has gone through a process of awakening. Um, and I, I can see many examples of this, even outside of the psychological sphere. When you look at athletes, you know, it's, uh, the Mike Tyson's of the world, you know, the, it's kind of well known in boxing <clears throat> in particular that not in all cases do the best boxers come from rough backgrounds, but in a hell of a lot of them, they do, you know, there, there's something about that difficult environment that teaches them how to fight that gives them a different psychological advantage or edge that can only come from having grown up in a very, very difficult, violent, uh, background. And that translates into sport quite well, especially into combat sports. 
but you know, continuing with Mike Tyson, like, I don't know if you pay attention to him today, but that is somebody who's truly gone through a few spiritual awakenings. He has shifted fundamentally as a person through the process of deep introspection. And, uh, I think he's one of my favorite people in the world because this was going to be one of my, my bonus questions, but (laughs) you only, you only follow three Twitter accounts. (laughs) <laughs> out of, and you have tw- 22,000 followers or whatever it is. And those three accounts are Mike Tyson, something to do with dogs. And then I got I didn't d- dive deep into it, but it's kind of some, I'm just going to call it like an Eastern philosophy account. So yeah. I'd love to hear more about like some more specifics on like what those three mean and starting with continuing with like the train of thought with Mike Tyson. Yeah. Yeah. So continuing with Tyson, you know, this is a, somebody who is becoming truth realized. Um, that's a good word. And I think, you know, obviously I haven't spoken with him. I haven't uh, been able to dive into these questions with him directly, but my, my external perspective on him is this is somebody that has really, really invested himself in trying to heal from the emotional wounds of his childhood and his adult life. And, uh, he, as far as I could tell, has succeeded in that, you know, he, he's this really insightful, thoughtful, kind, loving person. Um, and, uh, one of the reasons that I follow him is because I admire the personal transformation that he's gone through and the transformation that he has gone through has been so deep that yeah he he's done what i refer to as you know gone through the incineration phase of healing which is when you dig deep enough into that process of introspection and you discover the truth behind why you might think feel and act in a certain way you almost inevitably discover that it's not your fault you know it wasn't mike's fault that he had some violent tendencies or, or that some of the other ways in which he behaved as an adult were a direct reflection of the pain and the suffering and the abandonment that he went through as a child. And having discovered the truth behind why he felt, thought, and acted the ways that he did, he was able to forgive himself and able to forgive the adults that that uh, let him down and that hurt him earlier in his life. And having done that and having seen how his life was built on top of somewhat of a fraudulent foundation of childhood pain, he realized that his adult life doesn't have to be a reflection of that childhood pain. And so the incineration phase is around is about just burning down everything around you that is a relic of trauma of one's past. You know, his relationships, the work he does, what he focuses on, where he lives, how he spends his time, all of that has fundamentally shifted. And I think that's awesome. So that's one of the reasons I, I follow Tyson. I, I, I just I think what he has done outside the ring is going to have an even bigger impact on and defining his legacy than what he did inside the ring. The other two accounts, uh, one is, uh, I think it's called irate dogs. Um, and it's an account where all they do is post pictures of dogs and then they rate the dog, you know, one at one through 10, but every dog gets a score of like 12, 13, 14, or 15. <laughs> and so for me, I just think dogs are the, uh, one of the true enlightened beings on the planet. They could teach us a lot. Um, I just love dogs. And then the third account is a, uh, is a gentleman by the name of Kapil Gupta, who is, I, I guess you could say he's a, he's a spiritual teacher of sorts. Uh, he would, he would probably hate that description, but, uh, that's probably the, uh, the best generic one I could provide. 
and he works with, uh, with people that are top performers, CEOs, professional athletes, you name it. He works with them to help free themselves from, <laughs> from falseness and from limit, limiting beliefs. And he helps, yeah, he is entirely obsessed with what is true. And I love that. Um, and having shifted my life in a way to orient around just living according to what is true, uh, life has just gotten so much better and more interesting. So that's why I follow those three accounts is I think all three of them are enlightened beings of sorts. <laughs> Mike Tyson, a, uh, an executive CEO pro pro athlete coach and dogs. <laughs> Otherwise I try not to follow anything else because, uh, frankly, I think most of the stuff in the world that's talked about is, uh, uh, false nonsense and it's just stuff that pollutes your mind. So mm -hmm. I don't waste my time on it. Noise. Um, if we know that childhood pain is the source of like our insights and our internal, um, findings and, and a, a source of truth, like a, a source of our ability to find truth. Why do the people, uh, that experience the most childhood pain and get the most benefit out of it work so hard to make sure that their children don't have that same pain? Yeah, it's a, it's a bit of a paradox. Um, you know, I don't, I don't have children, so I'm going to be, uh, this will be <clears throat> conjecture on my part, but me neither. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it's, uh, I mean, the, the way I say it to folks is no one would choose this pain. No one would in their right mind choose a deep psychological pain or a deep emotional pain. And someone wouldn't choose it, especially if they knew what they needed to go through in order to heal from that pain. Uh, I don't know of anyone that would raise their hand and be like, Hey, I'll do that in order to have a deeper philosophical perspective on themselves in, in life. Um, and so it's something that I truly believe is, I think, inevitable for some people to go through. You could say it's divine intervention. I just say that this is the way the universe works is there's some people who need to go through a pain that teaches them a lesson, which they some of them share with the world and that's what changes and elevates the consciousness of our planet. I think that's just the way it is. And I think that those people are selected, whether it's through some genetic random lottery through it, some underlying universal algorithm of sorts, or like I said, whether it's divine intervention, if, if you're of the religious type, uh, I think some of those people just need to go through it and it can't artificially be thrusted onto another person. And, uh, it's not necessary in order to live a good life either. There are a lot of people who have spent zero time doing any sort of deep intellectual, spiritual, or philosophical introspection. They haven't been truth realized in any way. And they go through life perfectly happy. And I also think that that's part of how things work. So I think it's not the role of humans to choose who and how others get to suffer and then what they learn from it. And I think for the parents of who have been through very difficult situations, who have come out very wealthy and successful and then who bring children into life that don't have to face those same circumstances. I think those parents are quite happy about that uh, because the, the fundamental instinct of any parent is like, I just want my kid to be happy and safe. And, uh, 
So I think that that it's part that that parental instinct overrides everything. Um, and you certainly don't want to expose your kids to the sort of emotional suffering that, say, Mike Tyson had to go through. Um, but I also think, in, in my personal opinion, it's a bit of the, the, the way the universe works. <laughs> some people are chosen to go through that pain and some aren't. Yeah, I think it's a truth that, you know, there's just always, I don't think it is a truth that there's just trade-offs in every situation and kind of just, what do you call it, like a Newton's law that there's, I don't know if it's an equal and opposite reaction to anything you try to do, but you shield someone from one mistake and then that's going to be causing another mistake just because all, it's a complex system and mm -hmm. that's just what happens. It's just too many variables and can't predict the consequences. Yeah, what's the quote? The, the pure and simple truth is rarely pure and never simple. You know, it's, it's just like that shit is complex and you know, like, and the fact that, you know, just to build on that a little bit more is, is, um, yeah, let's take, for example, with the advances in, uh, genome sequencing, you know, there've been scientists who have done some quick studies saying, you know, asking the question is every sperm and every egg genetically unique. turns out the answer appears to be yes. And, you know, a typical man, for example, may have somewhere around 500 billion sperm in their lifetime. And each one of those has at least a slight variation relative to the next. And so like all of us coming into life, it's just this random genetic lottery. And so my parents will say this all the time. Like I have the same kids, same house, same nanny, same schools. And then this one's a whack job. Who's always like punching holes in the wall and climbing trees and is kind of a feral child that I can't control. And then this other one's a bookworm. And it's like, where'd that come from? It's like, I don't know. <laughs> we, we like to act like we know what the future is going to be and we can predict everything. And we have no clue. We have no clue of the complexity of what's actually in control behind everything that's happening. And so I, I just share that as an example of like, you know, if, if, <clears throat> if you're going to bring a kid into the world and to, to try and anticipate who they're going to be and what they're going to be like and the circumstances they are going to go through and how that's going to shape them. We don't know. You have to just surrender to the process and see how it unfolds. I want to ask you about some of the specific healing techniques that are part of your journey. Uh, one in particular I've never heard of before <clears throat> is this EMDR. If I have the, the letters in the right order, what is that? And can you introduce that, share what your experience was? And then if you think it's something that should be more known about, it's appropriately rated, it's underrated, overrated. Sure. We'll go from there. Yeah. So EMDR, uh, I can't remember the exact acronym, but it's like eye movement desensitization, randomization, something like that, where it's what it does is at first I thought that this, this sounded like uh, hocus pocus stuff when my therapist mentioned it to me. Uh, but <clears throat> what it does is it typically either uses say, uh, alternating tones. So a patient will put a headphone on and it'll play, play alternating tones from left ear to right ear at a specific cadence, or you can hold little paddles in your hands that play alternating vibrations, or sometimes they just use the, the sort of eye follow technique of having the, the patient's eyes go left to right and follow the, the, uh, the finger of the clinician. But the, the point of those alternating patterns, whether it's tones or vibrations or the, the movement of the eyes is when a patient does that long enough, it kind of lulls you into a very calm, relaxed state. It's not like you're hypnotized, but kind of. And, uh, once the patient is in that very relaxed state, uh, it sort of opens up emotive aspects of the person. So their ability to get in touch with feelings and to kind of let the intellectual walls down that usually prevent people from moving into their feelings and feeling what they're thinking. And it also allows somebody to tap into specific memories, revisit those memories, almost in like a dreamlike state. 
and then to process those memories that uh, might have been uh, significant traumatic events, but to be able to process those in somewhat of a safe way now that they've been lulled into this relaxed, uh, this relaxed state. So for me, for example, I would lay on the, the couch with my therapist, I would have headphones on, I'd have paddles in my hands after about 20 minutes of alternating tones and vibrations, I was in this very relaxed, somewhat <clears throat> hypnotized state and I could then start talking with my therapist about traumatic memories and I could conjure up those memories. It was almost like I was dreaming where it was, it was, a, it was, it was a very vivid dreamlike experience, even though you're, you're quite conscious. And then I could approach some of those more difficult memories and talk through them with my therapist and transform the notion of that memory in my mind such that what it can potentially do is take those traumatic memories where there was a strong emotional, negative emotional response attached to them, like fear, pain. Um, and then by processing that particular experience, you sort of sever that emotional response that's been attached to that memory. And so something that might've uh, been triggering and provoked a very strong uh, emotional response uh, and nervous system response out of somebody. Uh, it sort of takes the volume at a say eight out of 10 and dials it down to like a two. So you still have that memory, but it just doesn't create that same visceral reaction to it anymore. And so it's a, it's a form of emotional healing that early on played a pretty significant role in, uh, in my therapeutic process. And it's, hugely underrated. <laughs> There's more and more folks. Uh, I've, I've through the last 13 years of the, the work that I've been doing on myself and just, uh, uh my participation in the world of mental health, uh, I've only encountered one person who hasn't benefited from it. Everybody else has said like, it's, it's been tremendous. What kind of bodily reactions have you had to, uh, the release of some of that negative or the, the severing of some of that negative, um, uh, emotion. One of the, uh, it was about a year and a half ago. I had a tremendous experience where I was, I had gone into a dedicated 24 seven psychiatric hospital to specifically focus on trauma and a lot of behavioral training regarding, uh, trauma responses, uh, that I developed over the years. <clears throat> and, and so I'm in this setting where all day I'm, you know, doing therapy, I'm, uh, having EMDR sessions. And one of the things that was offered was, uh, acupuncture and a specific type called auricular acupuncture, which is all the needles go in your ear. <laughs> Um, and I, I wasn't studied up on acupuncture, but I said, Hey, I'm here to do the work and to try and heal from some prior stuff. So I'll, you know, I'll try everything and I'll just see what works for me and what doesn't. And, uh, so I went into the auricular acupuncture session. I sat down, it's sort of this very calming music and lights are dim and then boom, five needles in each ear. And I could tell one of the needles in my left ear was more painful from the others. I kind of felt like a, like a jolt run through my left side of my body. And I, I joked with the acu acupuncture lady and said, Ooh, jackpot, <laughs> whatever that was. And she said, oh yeah, yeah, that's the, you know, that this is a point <clears throat> where it's associated with emotional blockages. And I said, okay, sure. So I close my eyes, I go into meditative breathing, listening to this calming music. And then within 30 seconds, like it, I could feel physical tension in my neck, my shoulders and my jaw release, which is where I tend to carry a lot of it. So I felt my body become relaxed <clears throat> and then I could just feel this huge swelling up of emotion coming from my stomach through my chest up towards my throat 
where I could feel like something is coming. And as I was sitting there with my eyes closed and going through meditative breathing, I was having a whole series of memory flashbacks. It's like my brain was darting around just searching for these old memories. And I was, I began to weep, you know, I was crying and it was just raw emotion coming out, not over any particular feeling or memory. It was just bottled up emotional energy. And that, that feeling of something coming up through my stomach continued to grow. And I could tell, like, I was going to have a breakdown, uh, in a good way. Like I was about ready to just, uh, weep. And so I got up, I walked outside <clears throat> because I didn't want to do it in a room with other people where I would disrupt what they were going through. And I went and I sat down and I, I just opened up in a way where it was, it was an, it was a raw nervous system response where what happened was I was sobbing. I so much so that, you know, it, when you sob hard enough, you have a hard time catching your breath kind of thing. So hyperventilating my whole body was shaking as if I was cold. Uh, but it was like hundred degrees outside. So, uh, so my whole body was shaking. My teeth were chattering and I was kind of like occasionally convulsing a little bit. And for 15 minutes, that just poured out of me. And uh, it felt like it was something that I had been storing in my brain and in my body for a long time. And when it came out, again, it wasn't around any specific memory or thought. It was just, just raw negative energy I had to let go. And, uh, yeah, I had a few other experiences like that, but there were just with that degree of emotional release, but they're always attached with a specific memory. And this time it wasn't, um, and it was special, you know, it was one of those things where the other folks who were there going through similar treatment, they came and they huddled around me and they'll put their hands on my shoulder. And as a group, we just kind of wept for a while. And it really, I think triggered and touched something off for the other, other people who were there, uh, similarly trying to heal from their emotional challenges. And, uh, yeah, it, it's the closest equivalent I can compare it to is in the animal kingdom where, uh, let's say that you're in Africa and there's a, uh, an impala and it's going to the water to drink. And then an alligator pops out and latches onto its arm and the impala is in a fight for its life. After a minute, it manages to yank its, its leg away. And then it, it runs away, but it's traumatized. It just had a near death experience and it's so traumatized that in the mind of the deer, it may condition it to say like, I'm never going to go drink water again, because if I do, I'm going to get eaten and die. And so it, you know, something like that isn't something that a wild animal can, can store and not process because it, it could, it could literally be the, the, the difference between life and death for that animal. It needs to be able to process these things in a way such that it can still go about the natural part of its life regarding the need for food and shelter and, uh, procreation and all that. So this, this Impala will eventually go and find say a, a tree or a bush where it can lay under in the shade and it can be safe. And when it feels safe and secure, you'll see the animal just shake. And it's, it's releasing that traumatic experience, that emotional energy through a physical response of just shaking, it'll shake that energy out. And once it's done, it can get up and it can go about its day, <laughs> but that deer doesn't hold on to it. Animals know that they need to release and process stuff. Otherwise, you know, if it disrupts any of the natural functions, the animal's not going to survive. And so it, it felt like what I had seen in wildlife videos was what my body was doing. Andy, you've got a ton of fascinating stories and a ton of practical and then practical tips in, in your essays, inspiring stories as well, and anecdotes, et cetera. Where should people, we're coming, 
coming up against our time here, where should people start with your content? I know you have, you might have one specific kind of actionable piece of advice you can give now too, but you've also kind of made a couple like really long, like 30 to 40 minutes to read them, like, or at least like the audio uh, posts that tell like long stories and a couple that are just like 60 second bullet point lists of like resources, tips, strategies. Uh, where should we have people start out if like they found you interesting, they think they could benefit from trying some similar things and taking lessons from your story? Sure. Yeah, my Substack is at andyjohns.substack.com. If you go there, you'll see the articles I've posted. And it is kind of a smattering of different uh, subjects and concepts. Some are short, some are long. I just write according to what I feel like covering that day. But I'd, I'd say just go there and search for the, the, the bit of content that seems most valid and relevant uh, to whatever you're facing at that point in time. How are you going to say something? I was going to say, I got a lot more questions for you, Andy. I'm happy to keep going. I'm happy to keep going. It's totally up to you guys, but we can always do a V2. I think Lewis I has uh, yeah. stand up meetings. Hard yeah, stop. Can, let's do a V2 though. Let's do it. I'd love to do a V2. It's not scheduled, uh, book, book ended, but <laughs> it's been incredible. Sure. Andy, thank you so much. Yeah. I appreciate it guys. Thank you. And I look forward to round two. That closes out this conversation with Andy Johns. Three quick takeaways for me, and then we'll wrap this thing up. First one is I really like Andy's use of role models. This is some pretty generic advice, if you want to call it that. But I think we really focus on role models as things like children use. You know, you put up a poster of some athlete on your wall, and, and that's it. But I really like how Andy has a really kind of intellectual way that he finds inspiration from people like Mike Tyson. He kind of shares the specific aspect of his story that he seeks to emulate. And I think people underappreciate how useful that super simple strategy is. Second one is just the statement, pursue the truth, pursue what is true and avoid mind pollution. I think that's all a reminder that can be good for us. I think that a lot of influencers in this day and age, if you will, get popular just because they're willing to say true things before other people are willing to say those same true things. So everyone's like really interested in watching them say kind of the thing you're not supposed to say because it's true, but no one wants to recognize that it's true. And your life just becomes a lot more powerful when you pursue the truth. And that's Andy is just one really interesting case study of that. And third takeaway is that it takes a super long time. So it takes you about 50 minutes to listen to this episode 25 if you're listening to it at double speed takes me one weekend to binge all of Andy's Substack articles and everything like that. But it took Andy 13 years or more, I forget this specific number, but over a decade for all of the different realizations and lessons and learnings to have come true and to have tried all the different therapy practices and see the benefit. So just kind of a takeaway of like setting expectations appropriately that this is a 40 minute, 50 minute podcast, but Andy summarizing lessons and takeaways and changes in his life from a decade long experience. Uh, so, you know, don't expect to become like old Andy to new Andy or old you to new you overnight, just from listening to this conversation. You gotta, you know, I, I think I've been working on this thing called a, a cringe podcast bingo card when it's like podcasts do things like make an analogy. That's like, it's like going to the gym or you got to do the work. Uh, and it's kind of like, take a drink, take a shot. Every time you hear one of those things you hear on every podcaster, it's like the hero's journey. Anyway, uh, that meme is going to pop off when I finish all 25 cards. Anyway, you got to do the work. It takes a long time. Uh, to do all this therapy stuff, not just listening to one episode. That's it for me for this conversation with Andy Johns. Hope that you enjoyed it. If you want more from Lewis and Kyle, make sure that you are subscribed so you know about the next episode. It's pretty easy to subscribe if you're on YouTube. You press the subscribe button. If you're on Apple Podcasts, press the uh, subscribe button. That's how they know about the next episode, which will be out in roughly one week. See you then. Bye-bye.